similar uh, in the past. Only God can put things into the past that are shadows of things to come, of the substance that is to come. We read about that in Colossians 2.17, that idea that the things in the past are the shadows, but Christ is the substance. And so we see these types and antitypes. Antitype meaning before, not against. Uh, and the idea here is that in the Old Testament, there are people, there are situations, there are things that were types of Christ, types of the church. And we see these throughout the Old Testament, and we can use these to gain a further understanding of the plan that God has for us and for our lives. So we take a person or an event, we take someone like, you often see people like Adam or Isaac or David or Daniel as types of Christ. You see the ark, uh, the Noah's ark being a type of the church. There's one door to go into it. There's one window. Uh, you were saved by water. Uh, there are a few people who are righteous who were saved. You had to be inside the ark in order to be saved. Just as we have to be inside Christ in order to be saved, we're saved through water, through baptism. First Peter 3. There's all those types that we have in the Old Testament. And it's a biblical approach. Inspired writers used this, this typology. Uh, we see it uh, being used in 1 Peter 3.21 for Noah and the ark being as a type of the church. Uh, that's 1 Peter 3.20 and 21. It's a simple thing, uh, this type and anti-type uh, relationship. And the one that we're going to look at today is Esther for Easter. Now, when I did that, I wasn't confused, and uh, I will say that I wasn't going to preach on the resurrection today. I know that many places, uh, many denominations do that today, being Easter, uh, but we are nowhere directed to do that, and we celebrate the life of Christ, and we remember uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ every Sunday as part of, of this memorial service that he set up for us, and we'll do that uh, at the end of service today as we do every week. But I wanted to talk about Esther today. I was writing uh, a type anti-type bookmark uh, on Esther, and I found it so interesting I wanted to develop it into a sermon. This approach, as I said, is biblical. Uh, in other words, you know, as I said, Peter uses it, Paul uses this type anti-type relationship. It is simple. We're, we're taking something that we can understand. We take a story and we look at the details of that story and it helps us fully, fully understand uh, the the relationship and the method and the the power that God has for us in the plan of salvation and in Christ Jesus. Uh, it employs the Old Testament to reveal the New Testament. So sometimes I'm sure you've heard the phrase that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Uh, that idea being that we're looking at these Old Testament stories, the old times when it was the time of the law, the time of the prophets, and we're looking at those stories and we're revealing things about the New Testament story, deeper concepts. It encourages us to think deeply 
about these topics. As we meditate on them and we think and we look closely at these situations, we start to see the layers that are in the Bible, which helps prove the Bible. It helps us gain an appreciation for this wonderful book, the Bible, a book that's like unlike any other. It's it's an amazing book that has these interconnectivity pieces that a man could not have just written. And that's part of the beauty of this type-antitype relationship. We see God putting these things, these details, in these old stories. These are true stories. These are events that actually happen. But through the foreknowledge of God and through the providence of God, he brought them out in such a way that we can apply them the things that we see in the New Testament, and it's effective. Many people have been converted by this type-antitype relationship because they can see the depth and the beauty that's in the Bible. As I said, in this lesson, we are going to, to take a look at Esther. So you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, uh, Nehemiah Esther, uh, right after all the first and seconds there, uh, first and second. Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, then it's Nehemiah and Esther. And we're going to be in that predominantly throughout uh, the rest of this lesson. And uh, we're going to study this Old Testament character, Esther, and we're going to use her as a type of Christ. Now, uh, in this type of relationship, that we're talking about here. It's a little bit unusual. We don't study the women of the Old Testament as often as we do the men. We don't study women as types of Christ as often as we do the men because there are quite a few more men that are types of Christ uh, than there are women. I think that Esther is probably the one that makes the most sense. Uh, Probably Deborah would be another. Uh, There would be a woman that would be a type of Christ. So it's unusual for that that reason, but I do think it is appropriate. I don't think it's wrong to use a woman as a type of Christ because we see that women were used as types by inspired writers. You may recall that Paul talked of the allegory of Hagar and her son and Sarah and her son uh, and talking about uh, their lives and how those things portray uh, in the church. In Galatians 3, 22 through 31, Also, I believe that women can portray Christ in their life just as men can. Uh, She is not a direct type of Christ. That is, she is not quoted uh, or her life is not referenced as a type of Christ in the New Testament. But we can apply the ideas of parallelism and the ideas and the details that we see in these stories. We We can apply typology to her story. And her story takes place in... Uh, the, the, what is that called? Archimenid Empire uh, in Persia, uh, mainly in the city of Susa, which is the capital uh, of that empire. There are five main characters, but it's all taking place here in Susa. And the five main characters that tell this powerful story about salvation. The first is King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, which we know better, I think, as Xerxes the first. Uh, he is the, the king that is in charge of this Persian empire. 
You may know him from the story of where he fought the Greeks. He fought the 300 Greeks and they held him uh, back at the gates because he had millions, but they had 300 men who fought in this narrow passage. Uh, that's a true story from history. They, he did finally defeat them, but he, had, he took such tremendous losses uh, that later the Greeks are able to, to beat him back. He has decided to hold a banquet that is going to last for 180 days. And toward the end of that banquet, when he, it says he is, basically it says he is drunk, uh, he decides that he wants his queen uh, to be put on display. So he calls Queen Vashti to come before him. Now she was holding her own party separately from this, and he summons her and he says, I want you, because you're so beautiful, I'm going to put you on display in front of all the, the men at my party. Uh, that's a little bit strange. And Queen Vashti decides that that's not appropriate and she's not going to do that. So she refuses the order of the king. Well, in that society, you don't refuse an order of the king. It ends very badly for you. And it ends badly for her. She refuses this order, and they start talking amongst themselves. These men talk as, as men sometimes do, and they say things like, well, if the wife of the king can refuse his order, what, when I get home, my wife's going to refuse my order, and that's not any good at all. You've got to do something about this. You can't just let her refuse what you told her to do. And the king says, yeah, you're right, and he banishes her. So she is cast out. So she's the the second character. And this banishing of Queen Vashti brings about three more characters into the story. The first is Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai is, is probably a fairly young man. And Mordecai sits at the king's gate. He evidently has some kind of job there that he does for the king. And in the goings about of his job, he overhears two of the king's guard, two of the king's men, talking about how they're going to assassinate. They're plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. And he reveals this. He tells on them. And, of course, they are executed and the king was saved. And for that, he doesn't get any reward or anything like that, but uh, he has saved the king's life, and it is noted in the chronicles of the book of the kings. Uh, so that, that is the major event that's taken place with Mordecai. And he has been made the guardian of our, our heroine here. Uh, Hadassah is her name. There we go. She becomes, of course, Queen Esther. She's given the name Esther, which means star, because she is hiding her Jewish heritage. The king and his men do not know that she is Jewish. But she has lost both of her parents, and she has been sent to live with her cousin, Mordecai. And he is, is taking, he has agreed to take care of her. She is, I'm sure, a very young woman, probably 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that neighborhood. And then finally, we have the bad guy of our story, Haman. Uh, 
I made him look like a bad guy. So Haman is, uh, he is second in command to the king. And his ancestry is of the Amalekites. He was born of Eliphaz, a son of Esau. Now it's important to realize that and to note his heritage uh, because they are enemies of the Jews, uh, bitter enemies. And in fact, they had attacked, during the Exodus, they had attacked the Israelites and they attacked them. They had asked for permission to cross their land. All this, this stuff, they had tried to, to work with them, but then they were attacked and they attacked the rear of their column where the, the sick and the slow and the elderly were. And, uh, and, uh, and so they were bitter enemies of, of the Jews. And God told them and told the Israelites that they would be punished for that. In Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, since they had attacked the Israelites and, and made them these bitter enemies, that he told them that they would be utterly wiped out. And then he commanded King Saul to do that later. He commanded him to attack the Amalekites and to completely wipe them out, to destroy all of their people and all of their city. But Saul didn't do that. He kept back the best of what they had, and he kept the king alive, and he tried to to keep the best of the people alive. Samuel saw to it that the king was killed, but some of his relatives escaped. And because they didn't do that, they didn't do what God told them to do, now we have Haman here, who is a bitter enemy of the Jews. Haman gets upset that Mordecai will not give him honor, and bow down before him, and he devises a plan. It really eats at him that Mordecai won't bow down and, and give him this honor. So he tells the king, there are a people that live here among us, and they don't follow our ways, and, and they're really just evil people, and they're interspersed among us, and we really need to wipe them out. He doesn't tell them who they are. It doesn't seem. He just says, there are these people. I've discovered them, and they're, they're working against you, and if you will give me permission... I will put out an order in your name and we will wipe them out. And in fact, I will put up a bounty of 10,000 talents of silver. Now, one talent is 75 pounds. So 10,000 talents of silver, that is a lot of money. And I'm going to put up a bounty to pay those who will kill these evil people. And so the king gives him permission, gives him a signet ring. He writes up this law. And he declares this day, it's about a year away, that we are going to wipe out the Jews by the authority of the king. Well, naturally, Mordecai and all the Jews are, are terrified of this. And he still, of course, won't give Haman honor. But Mordecai asks Esther to intervene with the king. Now, why was she in a position to do that? Well, because the king had banished Queen Vashti, they came up with this idea, we're going to have a little contest. Let's get all the young women, the most beautiful women from all over the nation. Let's train them for a year. Then you can kind of interview them, and you can decide which one is the best to be queen. So Esther is one of those that is taken 
one of those who is taken and uh, is a candidate for queen. She goes through this whole process, and the king selects Esther. So she becomes the queen. Now, she is now in a position to have influence with the king. And Mordecai asks her to do that. But there is a problem. If you'll remember, the king, if you do things that he doesn't ask you to do or don't do things that he asks you to do, he can be quite violent. And in fact, if you go before the king without permission, if he has not called for you, and you just burst in and say, I've got to talk to the king, that could go very badly for you. He could kill you. And in fact, if he doesn't extend his scepter, the rule is... If he doesn't forgive you trespassing on him like that, then you'll be taken out and killed immediately. And he hasn't called for Esther in 30 days or more. So she's very nervous about going and talking to the king uninvited to try to ask him to do anything. But there seems to be no other way. Mordecai encourages her and she goes to invite the king and Haman to a banquet. When she goes, she had asked them to fast and pray for three days before she did this. And then she does that, and the king does extend his scepter. He's pleased to see her, and he accepts the invitation to a banquet for him and Haman. Haman's excited about it, because uh, he doesn't know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, they have the first banquet, and the king off is so pleased that he offers Esther anything that she asks up to half of his kingdom. Uh, And she asks him to come back to another banquet and bring Haman again. Haman is so excited and encouraged by this. uh, And he goes out, but then he sees Mordecai. He's like, I'm so happy and I'm so blessed by the the queen inviting me to this banquet. And yet there's Mordecai and he's still, he just gets under my skin. And he's advised and they come up with the idea, you know, why don't you just kill him? Why don't we just hang him? He says, that's a great idea. That would make me happy. So let's build a gallows. And he puts his workers to building a 50-foot-tall gallows. I imagine it could be seen quite a bit from quite a far away. That night, the king has trouble sleeping. And he calls for, I guess, if, if you're a king, you can do something like this. He calls for his attendants to come read to him to help him fall asleep. And they read him the chronicles of the king, and they happen upon the passage where Mordecai saved the king's life by reporting those men. And the king asks what they did for Mordecai, and they said, well, we didn't do anything for him. And who happens along but Haman? Look at Esther chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. It says, And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house, to speak it of the king, to hang Mordecai. He's coming to ask the king, hey, is it okay if I kill Mordecai? On the gallows that he had prepared for him, and the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to honor more than to myself? <laughs> So Haman answered the king and said, For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king uses to wear, 
and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head, and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man without, withal, whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback throughout the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel and the horse, and thou said, And do so to Mordecai, the Jew, that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fall or fail of all that thou hast spoken. So Mordecai is going to be honored in the way that Haman thought he himself was going to be honored. As Haman comes to uh, ask to hang Mordecai. Things are not going well for Haman. This is this does not make Haman happy at all. Uh, but he has to do all these things. So he does them, and as soon as he's done doing them, they come to get him for the banquet to take him to Esther. Well, that's good. At least things are going to go better for him now uh, as I go into the banquet. Things are not going well for him, though. He does this, and while he's he's he goes to the banquet, the king again offers up to half his kingdom to Esther, and she at this time reveals and says, there is this edict that is against me and my people. This is, this is her revealing that she is Jewish, and that Haman has planned to kill all the Jews, and that I also am under this edict. I'm going to be killed. This infuriates the king, so much so he has to step away. He goes out into the garden, and at that time, Haman realizes that he's in a lot of trouble, and he throws himself at Esther is begging her for mercy. And about that time, the king comes back in and he sees Haman falling upon the queen and he thinks that he's attacking her. And so they carry him out and they execute him on the very gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai. And then he raises, the king raises Mordecai up to the position that Haman had before. And since a law of the king cannot be repealed, he works with Mordecai to issue a new law that the Jews can defend themselves. And therefore, they were saved from this edict of the king. That's a quick telling. I didn't want to read the entire book of Esther to you, but I wanted to give you that quick type, anti-type relationship now based on that story. We're going to look at eight different things quickly that are type-antitype relationships between Esther and Jesus. And the first of those are that both Esther and Jesus were raised by someone other than their own father. We see that Esther was raised by her cousin, Mordecai, and Jesus' father, of course, Joseph, on earth, was not his natural father, because of the miraculous conception of Jesus with a virgin Mary in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Two, both were obedient to those guardians, to their essentially adopted parents. Both were obedient in uh, Esther 2.10. We find where it says that, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. So Mordecai told her, look, don't reveal your Jewish heritage. And she obeyed Mordecai in that command. Jesus likewise, in Luke 2, 1, says that he was subject to his parents. 
Both were put on earth at just the right time and at just the right moment to affect salvation for their people. Esther appeared on the scene at just the right place and at just the right time and in just the right position to save her, her people. There's a beautiful statement by Mordecai in Esther 4, and I think it's 13 and 14. It says that Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. This is her question. She's like, if I try to go into the king and he hasn't invited me, he might kill me. Mordecai said, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, think this may be providence that you are here at just the right time and just the right place to save the Jews from this edict. And, and it appears that that is the case. What else but the providence of God could be at work here? The same is true of Jesus in Galatians 4 and verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of woman, made under the law. There was a vision, you'll remember, in Daniel chapter 2, given uh, here, of, of this statue, and it has the head of gold and all of that. Those represented different kingdoms. We won't go deep into that, but we'll say that the kingdoms that are represented, each one played a part in preparing the way for the Christ. The Babylonian Empire, which they had destroyed the temple, and they made it, so they could not, the Jews could not worship at the temple any longer. That forced the Jews to set up synagogue worship. That's the time when that was developed. The Medo-Persian Empire had a great respect for law. And of course, because the Jews had the law of Moses, uh, they respected that as well. The Grecian Empire, which is where Alexander went out, Alexander the Great, and he conquered all that territory, that unified the language and a lot of the customs of that area. Of course, after Alexander died, the Romans took over a lot of that. But that affected and aided in the spread of Christianity to have a common language that most people use. And then the Roman Empire, especially during the time of the first century under the Pax Romana, when they are not at war with anyone or they are only at war on the very frontiers of the empire, they had good roads, they had free trade, the Mediterranean was freed from pirates, uh, and they had free travel and communication and peace throughout most of the empire that allowed the church to grow. So we see that Jesus came at just the right time for everything that he needed to do to take place, and that the church grew because it was founded at just the right time to do so. Another type, anti-type relationship, I think, is in the 10,000 talents that Haman paid as a bounty for the Jews. I've read several different people who, who write on this type, anti-type relationship, and I think most of them get this wrong. Most of them compare this, I think, to the fact that Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. I think Joseph being sold into slavery, uh, that's an exact parallel of that idea. I think the parallel here is something that Jesus brings out as well. We look at the idea 
Uh, I think Esther says it in Esther 7, 4, where she says, For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. We've been sold. There's a bounty on our heads of 10,000 talents. Jesus points this out in Matthew, where he says that the weight of sin is like 10,000 talents. He's calling back to this story in Esther. He's talking about the same idea that, look, God's people were sold out to be destroyed for 10,000 talents. And in the same way, the weight of sin is like 10,000 talents that is on our head. That's Matthew 18, 24. Jesus was able to overcome that with a new covenant in his own blood. He was able to pay that debt, that bounty that we are under. Both were willing to lay down their lives for the people, although Esther did not end up having to lay down her life. She was willing to do so, but Jesus was not only willing... He actually did it. There's never been as great as love as that a man would lay down his life for his friend. And that's what Jesus did for all of us. As Christians, we've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Six, both sought another way but submitted to the will of God. In the case of Esther, she's, she did ask them to fast and pray ahead of time, but she did submit and go and risk her life. Jesus, of course, we think about him in the garden. Uh, If there's a way for this cup to be lifted from me, but there wasn't. That's what Jesus, that's the price Jesus had to pay and the burden he had to bear. And he was willing to submit himself to the will of God. That's Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. Even though it meant great suffering for him, he was willing to drink that cup of suffering. Seven, disobedience in the past led to the potential destruction of God's people. In Esther's day, that's what we talked about, the Amalekites. They had not wiped them out. And because of that, Haman was there to make this great plot against the Jews and try to wipe out the Jews. That's 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. But in the case of Christ, sin entered the world through Adam. That's Romans 5, 12. He talks about that. But all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of sin, because of man's disobedience, we were in danger of being destroyed, just as the Jews were in danger of being destroyed because they had not wiped out the Amalekites as God told them to. So disobedience led to this situation. And both of them, both Esther and Christ, nullified a law and replaced it with a new law. Haman passed this law that was against Esther and against her people and God's people. That's 3.13. Esther was effectively able to nullify that with a new law in Esther 4, 8, 4 through 6. Jesus nullified the law of Moses, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. It's Colossians 2.14, Ephesians 2.15 with the new law of liberty, James 1.25, and how wonderful that is. Well, summing up, I hope that you can see by looking at these types of anti-type relationships, we can kind of gain a deeper understanding 
of what Christ did for us. And it's very similar to the story of Esther and how she was able to save her people. The, the Jews celebrate Purim in honor of this event. Uh, it takes place about a month before Passover. And the same is true of Jesus. He was able to save God's people, us, through the blood that he had to pay to pay that horrible debt of sin. The wages of sin are death. And that's the price that Jesus paid. But you have to be in Christ in order to get the blessings that are found only in Christ. And we would encourage you uh, today, if you're not, if you never put on Christ in baptism, we would encourage you to do so. We would love to study with you so you have a full understanding of what it is that through obedient faith, you can be saved, you can be in Christ, you can be one of His, and you can be saved from your sins. If you have done those things, but you have fallen away, you've let sin come into your life and reign again in your life, we would encourage you to confess that, repent of it, and we will pray with you and for you. Come now, uh, make it known as we stand and sing.